0: what in the hell is going on what the hell is going on what the hell is going on <laughs> i don't know what the hell he's talking about you don't have to know what the hell is on it what the hell's the matter with these guys we don't know what's going on what the hell's going on who in god's name knows what it's all about
1: hi i'm danielle petka
0: and i'm mark Thiessen.
1: welcome to our podcast What the hell is going on?
0: Mark? What the hell is going on? Well, it's Thanksgiving week. And rather than take a hiatus, which we had talked about doing, and take the week off, we decided to bring you a new introduction to one of our most popular podcasts that we've done so far. This summer, we interviewed Professor Alan Gelzo of Princeton University, one of our country's most eminent historians, about critical race theory and what actually is critical race theory, because so many people are talking about it, debating it. It was clearly the driving issue in the Virginia gubernatorial race, but a lot of people mischaracterize it. And Professor Gelzo spent time with us and walked us through what actually is critical race theory. Where does it come from? What are the intellectual and philosophical roots and what does it actually teach, which I think a lot of people don't know. And after the Virginia elections, I decided to write a column using our interview with him in the Washington Post quoting him and laying out what critical race theory is, and uh, people's heads exploded, Danny.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. How many comments are you at now? More than 5,000, I know. Uh,
0: 6,000, yeah.
1: Excellent work, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> way to bring, way to bring <laughs> harmony to our society. No, look, I think as folks gather with their families, we release this on Wednesdays usually, and Thursday is Thanksgiving. You know, the thing that is nearest and dearest to people's hearts, no matter where they come from, no matter what their politics are, no matter whether they're frankly in Afghanistan or in the United States, is their family, their children, their children's education, their children's safety and security, and their children's futures. So when we thought about what it is that we wanted to talk about, we talked with Yasha Monk last week, absolutely fascinating conversation, really smart analysis. I think we wanted to, again, bring back some discussion about what the foundations are of critical race theory, because it's something we're all going to be talking about one way or another. And what I really appreciated about Professor Gelzo was that he presented not a rant against how this is corrosive, but a deconstruction of the roots of the idea, where this comes from. And more importantly, what it leads to in terms of philosophies of tolerance, philosophies of critical thinking, left, right, and center.
0: The scientific principle of falsifiability that you actually have to have evidence and be able to disprove or prove your thesis based on evidence as opposed to feeling.
1: So, one of our greatest hits. And with that, we will see you next week. And both Mark and I wish you a very, very happy and argument free family Thanksgiving.
0: Here's our interview with Professor Gelza. Professor Gelzo, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be back. Well, th- what prompted us to have you on is you were on Fox News the other day and you. First time I'd ever heard Immanuel Kant mentioned on Fox News, but it was a fascinating explanation of what critical race theory is. And, you know, most Americans look and hear this and think, well, what's wrong with teaching racial sensitivity in our schools? What's wrong with confronting our, you know, the flaws of our racial history? But that's not really what critical race theory is. What can you tell us what it is and where it comes from? Well, let me answer the second part of that question first, and
2: then let that begin to answer the first part let's do a little history. Critical theory has a very long trail, surprisingly. You can find its origins in a reaction against the Enlightenment and against the confidence that scientific reason could discover the answers to things like physics, as it did with Isaac Newton, to art, as in the writings of Sir Joshua Reynolds, uh, to religion, as it did with uh, Bishop Butler, Uh, to economics, as it did with Adam Smith, and ultimately to society, as it did with Locke and Montesquieu. The Enlightenment was confident that reason could discover the real answers to these things. But you know, there was always a suspicion that human reason was getting ahead of itself, that somehow it was missing the real essence of things. It It was giving us the dry and dusty logic rather than real life. Now, we usually call this reaction to the Enlightenment, we call it romanticism. And it had its philosophers as well as composers and artists. And that is where critical theory begins. The hinge figure here is Immanuel Kant. A lot of Kant faces back to the Enlightenment. Kant was appalled at the irreligious conclusions to which reason had driven the Enlightenment. He was determined to find a way around enlightenment religious lack of faith so he says what can we know for certain well if we rely strictly on reason we discover that reason only works on what our physical senses tell us and that's not much reason can't penetrate into the essence of things some other tool was needed to reach what he called the thing in itself so to brush back the influence of reason Kant develops a critique of reason, a critical theory, if you will, and he does this by asking a series of skeptical questions about reason. All right, here's question number one. When reason asks what is or or what is not, how comprehensive is that question, really? Is something failing? Is something being held back there? Question number two when you become hesitant about reasons strength in asking questions then ask this why are you asking this question what is really motivating you question three when you become self-conscious of the real motivations for your reasoning then ah that's when you see how little reason can penetrate to the real essence of things and you awake to a new reality and that reality is that reason has blinded you that is critical theory mark it is a procedure for unmasking one's
0: real motivations and the real nature of things and Professor Guelzo, one of the things you said in this interview was that this led to everything from the Third Reich to Jim Crow. Connect that to us, what you just said.
1: I think what Mark is asking, which is really fascinating, is, you know, we hear all of this facile talk about uh, and criticism of critical race theory without understanding the philosophical underpinnings, but also the historical underpinnings. So can you draw us, if I may use Barack Obama's somewhat loathsome term, can you draw us an arc from Immanuel Kant through to to the modern day and some of the ideas this has spawned?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Kant, you have to understand, Kant actually hoped that critical theory would produce a healthy Religious and philosophical result. But it didn't. Instead, critical theory set off a chain reaction of romantic investigations for non rational explanations of reality. Now, some of those non rational explanations took the form of nationalism. That's what you find in the philosophy of Georg Hegel. Some of them took the form of out-and-out racism. That's what you find in the writings of the French racist Arthur de Gobineau. This is all 19th century. Above all, you find non-rational explanations of reality based on economic class. And that is Karl Marx. You see, the fundamental contention of critical theory is that everything you see on the surface around you is actually entirely separate from the intentions that created it. You might think that you could explain, oh, let's say Napoleon Bonaparte. You might think you could explain Napoleon by power politics practiced by a shrewd Corsican. In reality, you know, his triumph was really governed by the conquering spirit of nationalism. And you might think that economics functions as what Adam Smith called a natural instinct to truck and barter. But in reality, it's governed by the oppressive relations of class. Now, especially in the hands of Marx, critical theory uncovers the activity, not of employers and employees, but of an oppressor class and an oppressed class. Now, the great attraction of critical theory is that, like the romantic poets and the romantic artists, it promises an emotional burst of revelation and indignation. It allows you not so much to understand, because remember, understanding is a function of reason. It allows you not to understand, it allows you to denounce. It allows you to replace the question, is what I know true, with a different question? Whose interests does this question serve? Now, the great weakness of critical theory lies at exactly that juncture. If the only purpose of questions is to serve the interests of a dominant or oppressive class, then no question that you ask about the truth of a situation or the truth of an event or the truth of a proposition, none of that kind of questioning about truth has any meaning. And any answer you come up with, which doesn't speak in terms of some hidden structure of oppression, can can simply be dismissed as part of the structure of oppression. Critical theory, if I can put it this way, critical theory lacks what Karl Popper called a vital element of a scientific method of inquiry, and that element is
0: falsifiability. Critical theory lacks falsifiability. Basically, critical theory spawned racism, nationalism, and Marxism. So how has it brought us to the anti-racism? movement here in the United States start with that idea about falsifiability falsifiability
2: means that before you grant any answer or any assertion or any hypothesis or any theory the status of a worthwhile belief that theory that answer that hypothesis has got to show on what grounds it might be proven false and if that theory or answer passes that test of falsifiability then fine it is a worthwhile belief if not move on to the next hypothesis critical theory shrugs away any test of falsifiability because it has discovered the real hidden explanation for everyday problems and any attempt to suggest criteria for falsifiability means that you are actually part of the conspiracy undermine critical theory. And this is where we get, for instance, to the Nazis. For instance, if you believe, as the Nazis did, that the Jews are responsible for all political and economic events, then my pointing out that the overwhelming majority of political leaders are not Jews merely shows that I am either a dupe of the Jews or that I'm in on the fix. That is how Nazi racial theory functioned. It was a kind of critical theory.
1: So this is absolutely fascinating. And and I think your argument about sort of the lack of falsifiability, while it sounds like an elegant intellectual argument, is in fact the sort of space in which we find ourselves. I still remember that I came back from an event at a television station, and I won't be more specific than that, and one of my guests, one of my co-panelists, didn't like something I said, and she turned to me uh, during the commercial break, and she said, yes, you know... Many white people just don't realize their own racism. Exactly. And, and I, I, I I, mean, my, my I, I was agape, right? But this is falsifiability, right? It is. You said that your argument is rooted in the whole structural weakness of your society, right?
2: Right. You are in on the fix. If you object what is being promoted by critical theory that merely demonstrates that you are part of the problem Uh, now uh, what i've talked about this resistance to falsifiability is a great weakness for critical theory for a lot of other people that's actually that resistance to falsifiability that's critical theory's great strength right it means that they now have a ready-to-use explanation for everything and it's an explanation which is proof against any kind of normal reasoning or normal objection. And the classic example is in how Marxist theory developed in the 20th century. In Marxist theory, the proletariat, the working class, is oppressed by the dominant bourgeoisie. And the dominant bourgeoisie are oppressors because they control the means of production. And being in control of the means of production, they're able to immiserate. That, that was a fond Marxist term. They're able to immiserate and exploit the proletariat, you know, the poor proletariat. They have to produce for the bourgeoisie for wages, and the wages are far, far, far below the value of what is actually produced, and that value is what is appropriated by the bourgeoisie. Now, for Marx, it was as sure as the sun comes up in the morning that in a brief time, a moment of crisis would arrive and the oppressed proletarians would rise up, shake off their chains and overthrow the bourgeoisie. Well, the moment of crisis arrived in 1914 with World War I, only the proletariat, (laughs) the proletariat, bless their hearts, rather than rising in revolution, went out and fought for their kings and their emperors for four perfectly pointless years in the trenches of the Western Front and the plains, the snowy plains of the Eastern Front. Now, at that point, Marxists should have turned to each other and said, you know, look, was Karl wrong? Well, no, no, cried the post-World War I generation of Marxists. Uh, No, they said, no, Marx was not wrong. The problem was that the proletariat had been suckered. The proletariat had been inculturated into bourgeois democratic values, and they didn't see their misery as misery. They didn't see democracy <laughs> for what it really was, which was another form of oppression. Now, in this way, Marxist theory does a major shift. People do not resist the bourgeoisie because they failed to penetrate the cultural veil of hegemony. That's really the case that has happened here. They've been drugged so that they don't see their oppression by bourgeois culture. What they require, you might say, is not so much a revolution, they require a revelation, which will enable them with newly opened eyes
0: to look around and see how they have been suckered, and then we will get the Marxist revolution. So, bring this home to today. So, for the Nazis, the Jews were the oppressors. For the Marxists, the kulaks and the bourgeoisie were the oppressors. And today, in 21st right. century America, the whites are the oppressors. Basically, yes. Critical theory springs out of that in a number of new applications.
2: And then finally, we get to critical race theory. And critical race theory emerges as a way of destabilizing thinking about race. And yes, discovering hidden forms of oppression. It's what we find today in the writings of Ibram Kendi, uh, Robin DiAngelo, of uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Ab Delgado and Stefanik, and other promoters of critical race theory.
1: And of course, the New York Times 1619 Project, which is the sort of the more pedestrian version of that in action.
2: You might say that. Now, the 1619 Project does not directly invoke critical race theory. And there may be reasons for that that I have not entirely penetrated because I am not conversant with certain individuals who are part of that, and they are probably not eager to be conversant with me because I've been very critical of the 1619 Project purely on historical grounds. But there is a certain family resemblance that people have seen i would prefer not to pin the tail on any particular donkey at this point until someone associated with the 1619 project comes right out and says well what we're really doing is, is practicing critical race theory that hasn't happened so i will treat them uh, at least up until that point purely on the basis of historical debate what, what it, is the critical race theory teaches that race is the key factor in understanding all human relationships now the 1619 project says that race is the key factor in understanding American history. So there's a family resemblance, but I won't press it to be more than a family resemblance. If I'm sticking to talking about critical race theory, then what I have to say is that critical race theory teaches that race is that that most important, that non-negotiable, that governs and helps us to interpret all human relationships. Because all human relationships are relationships. Of power. And what critical race theory basically comes down to saying is that all white people are oppressors. All white people are instinctively white supremacists. Notice I say instinctively because this is not a function of reason. None of this, going back to Kant, has been a function of reason. All white people are oppressors. They employ privilege, they use tricks like democracy and the search for truth. They use those things to exploit and oppress and dominate people of color, or as it sometimes is used as an acronym, BIPOCs, uh, meaning Black, Indigenous, people of color. The only remedy is the inversion of color power. That brings us finally then to, to critical race theory, as it is being promoted and taught today.
1: Okay, so what I want to do is find my way out of this thicket. You've sort of given us all of the underpinnings and in some ways you've you know you've helped everybody visually erect this maze that we found ourselves in, whether rooted in you know in, in Kantian theory or in more modern versions of this. But what you're really suggesting is uh, on the most basic level of debate and argument, a denial of agency to almost anybody. Right. So you mentioned uh, an interesting piece that appeared by Charles Blow in The New York Times, and he goes at this in exactly the way that you would have predicted. Right. He says critical race theory was simply an analytical tool. But to some white people, the fact that white supremacy was overtly used to infect America's systems of power with both racial oppressions and racial privileges is too much to handle. It's discomforting. It unravels the American myth. In other words, by even arguing with this, you are, in fact, a racist. Okay, so how do thoughtful people... Don't believe themselves to be racist and who deplore racism when they see it. How do they extricate themselves from this thicket? Well, I think there are two things that need to be kept in mind. First of all, people need to
2: realize that there is no genuine compatibility between critical race theory and democracy. Democracy is about deliberation, it's about persuasion, it's about reason, and it functions. On the assumption that people are entitled to disagree. Democracy says that when a majority arrives at a conclusion, the majority has the right to have its way. And the minority has to acquiesce in that. At the same time, it also says that the majority is not entitled to take the minority and put them up against a barn wall and shoot them. Because it could be that over time and over argument and over reason and over evidence, the minority may persuade enough people that they can become the majority and the entire thing tilts again. It's about discussion, it is about reasoning, it is about evidence, that is what democracy rests on. Critical race theory reduces all disagreement to power relationships. Power relationships in which the oppressors are dealing with a marked deck. And there's no reason to trust anybody. There's no reason ever to want to say, well, you know, we might be wrong and there might come a time when you persuade enough people that you will have the opportunity to tell us what policy should be. Critical race theory eliminates that entirely because the very possibility that there could come a moment when those with whom you disagree could exercise that control over policy. That is a moment not of democracy. That is a moment of oppression. So, critical race theory, by reducing all disagreements to power and questions of power, means that democracy cannot function. Democracy has simply been eliminated. Democracy is, shall we say, a relic of Enlightenment reason. And, you know, in some respects, that is true. We often think of democracy as being something which began in Athens. But in the democracy, that we live with and have lived with since the end of the 18th century we are really talking about democracy as it functions under the umbrella of the enlightenment and under the umbrella of reason but critical race theory eliminates that so people don't need to understand fundamentally you can have critical race theory or you can have democracy but you cannot have both the second thing is there's no real compatibility between critical race theory and what I would call academic life. Now I live inside academe, I have all of my career. So that's is important to me, but I think it's also important to others because academic research, which has produced so much of improvement in everyday lives. Academic research is about establishing what is true through constant application of experiment, of questioning, of reasoning, And, yes, of falsifiability. But for critical race theory, oppression cannot be falsified. Oppression can only be unmasked. The search after truth can therefore only be the servant of oppressor interests. And that means that any kind of academic life, and and in truth this doesn't mean just colleges and universities, it's any life of inquiry about subjects that matter. That is made impossible by critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theory of dominance and power. It is about how to overthrow a dominant party and how to replace it with another. And for that reason, it actually leads to an unending cycle of violence, because that Really, that is how critical race theory understands all human relationships, as being built out of power and violence. If critical race theory is what you want to embrace, then you are going to have to embrace a life which is a cycle of violence, which is anti-democratic, and which makes no effort to search
0: after truth. And that's a pretty stiff price to pay for critical race theory. The other thing that's interesting is when most Americans think about race, they think about battling discrimination. But critical race theory actually embraces discrimination. You mentioned Ibram X. Kendi. He said the defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. And the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So it actually embraces discrimination. It does. And
2: in so saying, Kendi has really done nothing more than to translate the categories described by Herbert Marcuse and the latter generation of Marxists to a racial environment. Because when Marcuse talked about free speech, he said virtually the same thing. The only real speech is the speech that promotes the interests of the proletariat any other kind of speech must be suppressed and if you say well that's a contradiction of free speech no it isn't the only genuinely free speech is the speech that is uttered by the proletariat so for Herbert marcusa it is entirely possible to say that the way towards free speech is to suppress free speech in exactly the same way that Kennedy says that the way to move towards a non-discriminatory society is to discriminate incessantly the translation is simply from one category to another
1: one of the reasons that this has become such an argument both at the at the federal level but also at the state legislative level is because increasingly we are seeing these ideas or ideas that have sprung out of this theory being taught in schools. And even if they're not being taught with the explicit moniker of of critical race theory, they are fundamentally being taught with this sort of non-falsifiable assertion that structural racism, and we haven't yet used that expression, but that structural racism is such that honesty is, is not even possible the system has to be upended and and for a lot of parents and I know Mark and I feel this way you know as parents of students in university and in high school is just how do we stop this? Why is this fight so vicious? And, and do you think there's anything to be done about it? And
0: the fight, by the way, before I, if I could jump in, the fight is not so much about teaching it in universities because, you know, your students, your philosophy students are going to have a field day with what you've laid out here. But we're talking about teaching this to grade school students. So they're not going to be teaching them Kant, but they're going to be teaching them the results of this kind of thinking. Why is that dangerous to teach that to grade school kids?
2: Well, it's, it's extremely dangerous simply because of the impressionability that prevails in the students at that particular age level. To inflict upon them this kind of guilt is actually the commission of a serious psychological trauma. Now, it's argued back, oh, well, yes, well, trauma has been inflicted on others. So we're, just, we're getting a little bit of our own back here by reversing the trauma. The cure for trauma is not to traumatize somebody else. The cure for trauma is to get rid of the source of the trauma and to recognize it for what it is, not to try to call it something else. Critical race theory uses a number of interesting terms, which are the kinds of terms that when you press on them, turn out to have very little substance to them. They are terms like structural or systemic. Systemic sounds like systematic, except of course that it isn't. When you try to find something that is systematic, then you have to go find, you have to find evidence. You have to discuss it as though it was a subject of truth and examination. Systemic, however, implies something entirely different. Systemic implies something so deep and so instinctive that you're not even conscious of it. That is why critical race theory likes to to talk about racism as systemic racism. It is not going to be offering examples. It is not going to be inviting a reasonable discussion about race or racism. What it is going to do is to suggest that there are hidden structures, hence the use of the term structural. There is a systemic spin to it. There is an instinctive bias that is built into people of certain colors. Well, in this case, let's just call it what is so often called, and that is white supremacy. This is entirely resistant to any kind of questioning. The questioning itself is an example of how you're, you're in on the oppression. Nor can it be established by standing outside. If, if you're talking about something which is systematic, you can stand outside the system and examine it. But if you're talking about something which is systemic, then that infects every perception of it. You can't stand outside it. There is no objectivity. There is no way to stand. With a ruler and measure it come up with a formula even the action of creating a formula is part of the systemic nature of what you're critiquing so vocabulary of that sort is in a way designed to make critical race theory impervious to questioning and to investigation and it makes people back off and say well we have no idea, how can we respond to critical race theory? How can we respond to it, whether it's taught in schools, whether it's taught as training sessions in business, whether it's taught by heads of corporations, or whether it's taught by college, university faculty. People back off from that because you cannot evade, you cannot analyze, you cannot question something that you call structural or systemic, because if it's systemic, you are
1: part of the system itself there's no way objectively to stand apart from it and evaluate it. The one thing we haven't talked about here is the backlash because what i perceive when i talk to especially my younger kids about this is i i see that backlash. For me, one of the single biggest fomenters of racism that I have seen in decades in Washington has been this. This attempt to label all white people as racists has caused so much anger, racial anger, that it really is, I think, actually is the backlash that I think is going to be hugely dangerous in our society. What do you think about that? Well,
2: I am fearful of the backlash too. I am fearful of the backlash because when you indulge in unreason then you let loose the beasts of other forms of unreason if a particular theory cannot be reasoned with then you give up on reason and you surrender yourself to what you hope will be an alternative to it which turns out to be just as irrational in its own right so for instance the response to critical race theory should be questioning but for many people, the frustration that they experience is instead going to drive them into equal but opposite irrationality. The irrationality, for instance, of genuine white supremacy, of genuine Aryan Nazi fairy tales. It will give credit and sanction to withdrawing into that because if you're critical race theory... Is impervious to questioning and evidence, then fine. I will retreat into my critical race theory and it too will be impervious to evidence and to questioning. At which point then the only solution becomes violence. And it is that violence which will not only cause the the shedding of blood, but it is the violence which ultimately will be destructive of democracy itself. And that is a terrible, terrible price to pay. Because at the end of the day, naive though some people may suggest I am, I persist in being a believer in democracy. I persist in being a believer in reason and in the search after truth. I know all about the hesitations, the restrictions, the failures of reason. But my argument is that every moment at which reason fails, you pick yourself up and you keep reasoning forward yet again. And so much in the past, has been a justification of that. We have paid severe prices at those moments when people have lost faith in reason and decided to defect to something else. Those are the moments when genocide rears its hideous head. And these are the things that I become anxious for as possibilities in our future. And this is why I want to, on the one hand, have people understand what critical race theory is, understand that this is not something that you pick up from the water system. It's not something you breathe in from the air. It's not something inevitable like a sunspot. It it has a historical origin. It has an air tube, so to speak, to the past. You can cut that air tube. You can deal with that. You can respond to critical race theory. The question for us, I think, is what kind of tools can we put into the hands of people to respond to critical race theory at various levels? And that, I think, is the next step that we have to take. When we understand the history, then we're prepared to respond to critical race theory. And I would suggest that there are basic ways that we can and we should respond when we find ourselves in situations or in environments where people are promoting critical race theory. And some of these may be the kinds of things you take into a school board meeting. And some of these things may be things you take into a business meeting. Uh, Some of them may be things that you take into a campus environment. First of all, establish its non rationality. Human beings are rational beings. We have minds. We reason. If I tell you that A equals B and B equals C, then you cannot resist saying that A equals C. And that's, that's as old as the Greeks. You can't deny that. And you can't deny it because human beings are fundamentally rational people. We are rational beings. We reason. Now, Take critical theory out of its disguises, strip it of those disguises, and show that it is fundamentally non rational. Show that critical race theory can't show you how to change a tire, because to change a tire, you've got to understand, at least in the most primitive sense, a little bit about mechanics, a little bit about the application of force, a little bit about the application of gravity, how to do this, how to do it. There's a certain logical sequence, a certain rationality that goes into something as simple as changing a tire. And when the tire blows out, you just don't rail against it. All right, maybe you do for five minutes. But when the tire goes out, you have to set yourself to changing it. You have to do something reasonable. How would critical theory help you to change a tire? And the answer is it can't. All it can do is teach you how to be mad at it. How could critical theory enable navigation? not the meaning, not the theory of navigation. I mean real navigation. Now, real navigation is very mathematical. It is down to degrees of latitude and longitude, and those can't be waved away as mere examples of oppression or of white supremacy. You might want to think that, but then you'll have to explain why your boat crashed up on the rocks. In some respects, in fact, Critical race theory's non-rationality borders on what we would call, in psychological terms, cognitive distortions. There's a marvelous book by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. It was published in 2018, and I strongly recommend it. In it, Lukianoff and, and Haidt address much of what critical race theory tries to say, and Lukianoff especially, points out how close critical theory is to promoting what psychologists in cognitive behavioral theory call cognitive distortions. Now, I won't go into the weeds of the psychology here, but let me simply recommend Lukianov and Haidt's book for understanding that. Second point, embarrass critical race theory. Show... It's fundamental family similarity to conspiracy theories like the grassy knoll, like the protocols of the elders of Zion. Conspiracy theories function the same way. They too are impervious to falsifiability. Similar to conspiracy theories are cults like the Nation of Islam or the Heaven's Gate cult. The Nation of Islam, in a sense, was practicing critical race theory before critical race theory came along. Cults and conspiracy theories do this. embarrass critical race theory by pointing out how much it lives up to what Richard Hofstadter, a great American historian, once called the paranoid style in American politics. Third, complicated. Critical race theory likes to function by one-size-fits-all categories. But one-size-fits-all categories, like people of color, indigenous, one-size-fits-all categories defy the disparateness of reality. When critical race theory says that what is it combating is privilege, what is privilege? Who has privilege? How much privilege counts as privilege? What is a person of color? What do we mean by that term? What is indigenous? What does it mean to be indigenous? How long do you have to be in one place to be indigenous? So complicate critical race theory, because critical race theory thrives on radical simplicity. Fourth. Establish critical race theory's conflict with our basic human desire to know the truth. Sure, uncovering revelations of the secret operations of things gives you a momentary fizz, but it's really immature. It's something for adolescents. The basic human desire is to know the truth and to dig down to the truth and establish that critical race theory is really at war with that. Lastly, show critical race theory's historical roots. In other words, show that critical race theory is a historical narrative, just like all the other narratives it pretends to critique. And if we can do those five things, then we can respond effectively to critical race theory and show that instead of being an explanation, it is merely one voice crying in a crowd which has no more authority than any other voice in that crowd.
0: Professor Gelzo, you are a, a masterful in explaining all of this to us, and we are so grateful for your time. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, really. This is just fascinating.
0: Well, you're very welcome, and I'm happy to be able to have this discussion
2: with you. I know it took us into a lot of philosophical forests, but that,
0: in fact, is where we find the real origins of things. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. We're grateful. So, Danny, I think uh, Professor Gelzo has some good advice in his five-point plan for fighting this. This is a huge issue. We didn't get to ask him the question, but you know, in state legislatures across the country, they are banning teaching of critical race theory in schools. Normally, I'm not a big fan of banning teaching any philosophy because we believe in open debate and reason, right? But when you have a philosophy that rejects reason, a philosophy of unreason, and you're going to indoctrinate young children in this. It's one thing to have this discussion in Professor Gelzo's class at Princeton. It's entirely another thing when they're trying to indoctrinate children who are first graders, third graders, fifth graders, teaching them that you are an oppressor and you cannot reason your way out of it or have any reason to argument back against this philosophy. Even if they're not doing it so explicitly, if that's the foundation of it, that's
1: deeply concerning. I'm very conflicted about this. I don't like state legislatures telling schools what they can teach and what they can't teach because I think it's a slippery slope. Uh, today, we may be very pleased with the notion of the Florida state legislature banning the teaching of critical race theory, but uh, do we really want the Oregon state legislature banning the teaching of you know, religion? I think it's a very, very fraught Topic, and it is a testament to how broken our political system is that we cannot any longer have intelligent conversation. We have to instead have only sanction. You can't say this word, you can't say that word, you can't do this. Only certain people can do that. You can't teach this, you can't read that book. Okay. What is the end of that book? would you
0: would you uh, support a legislation that banned uh, teaching of white supremacy?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course I, you would. No, no, I'm I'm struggling with it. Yeah. Not not because I, I mean, think that, because that I think white we, supremacy should be taught because obviously. I but... need,
0: because I think we need to see this for what it is, Danny. Which is that this is not. Everybody agrees that we should teach people to be racially sensitive. Everyone who agrees that we should teach the history of our country without blinders on and be acknowledged the original sin of our founding and the flaws of our of our history. But this is something different. This is teaching a philosophy that basically says that America is intrinsically and inherently and irredeemably evil and that you need to look at everything through the prism of race. And you're either an oppressor or the oppressed. And if you're the oppressor, there's nothing you can do to uh, make up for it or change. It's it's just such a cancerous ideology.
1: Yeah, it is. But I got to say, you know, I'm much more comfortable. We saw these uh, school board elections in Texas. I'm much more comfortable when parents come in and get rid of the people who want to infect our school systems. And I'm much less comfortable when this is in the hands of politicians, just because I have seen, as have you too many times, the stupid ideas that our politicians often embrace for no good reason. I understand what you're saying, and I, and I get it. But like so many things, I feel like it's the people who are affected, who should be the guarantors of their children's education, the parents who should be engaged, who should elect school boards that actually are responsible in this regard. I hate the idea that we have to go around censoring people any more than I like being told, this is how I have to refer to people. This is how I have to say these words. These are the words you're not allowed to say because of who you are. There is no End to this.
0: I just, I just fundamentally. I, know you disagree. I fundamentally. I, I sh- again. I started out by saying I, I don't. I'm not for banning ideas, but part of first of all, I think the state legislature is the appropriate place. Since this, well, certainly it, better than Congress. The, than Congress. Absolutely, yeah. I think Congress should there stay out agree. of it. Uh, there we agree. State legislature, and I agree in school boards. There should be. There should be an issue. But you know, part of the job of the grade school education system versus the university is to teach citizenship, to teach. Uh, respect for your fellow citizens, to oppose discrimination. And so if I had a widespread movement in this country that was teaching that the Jews are what's keeping us down, the same kind of educational materials that were being used in Nazi Germany in the 1930s no, uh we Wilmar
1: would... trying to bring those back
0: she is she is <laughs> and that's an issue for congress but that's another podcast <laughs> we wouldn't want the educational materials that were being taught in uh, schools in 1930s germany to be taught to our kids no, um no, and no, and no, you know right. this is this is it's a fundamentally racist fundamentally unre- anti-reason undemocratic they're teaching kids to hate each other because of their race and hate their country and the job of our school is to teach the opposite and so i just don't think that this should be taught in our schools
1: so what do you guys think we really would love to hear from you uh, i have no doubt that in pretty much everybody's kitchen table in everybody's living room during your commute to whatever volleyball lacrosse hockey game you're you're doing with your families these are the kinds of questions that often come up and uh, and we're very curious to hear what our listeners think don't hesitate to share with us. Don't hesitate to tell Mark he's wrong and I'm right. Uh, don't hesitate to <laughs> subscribe, <laughs> review, keep share asking, with your friends. Keep asking, Daddy. Eventually, somebody
0: will. Call Eventually, it. one of. Eventually, you somebody, love somebody me.
1: will do it. I'll just be like Sally Field. They like me. Anyway, we look forward to hearing <laughs> from you, and uh, and thanks for listening. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath.